Chan Danahu, Tlaiki Conlangeri, Sasagim Niaurua Mau, Sum Tlunvumasaruthu, Wirchen Sunaun, Gulkursasusum Nauranduthu. Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me, uh, where are you, Jake? Uh, I'm in Madison. Yeah, so down the roadways, we have Jake Malloy. Uh, William is taking a short break uh, for a while, so uh, I thought I would bring in Jake. He's one of our sort of local group of Con Langers that uh, meets every month, and uh, uh I was, you know, trying to get some people on the show to talk about things, and he had an interesting topic that I thought we could um, talk about for this month, and uh, that topic is language policy. So it's sort of more in the realm of con-worlding than in con-langing, but, you know, if you have a con-world that your con-lang is set in, and there's multiple languages in there... And as as is reasonable, there's multiple languages in a particular country, in a particular jurisdiction, then there's going to be some sort of policy. Now, I think we're, we're, we're probably going to be skewed more towards modern um, cultures when we're talking about this, because uh, modern cultures have sort of more codified language policy, although, you know... Even going back into ancient times, at least there was a tendency for certain languages to be used for certain official purposes, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Jake, why don't you get us uh, started then? We'll, we'll talk a little about all the, the, um, all, the, all the things that go on in terms of, you know, when the government gets involved in language. Yeah, so um, I know on another uh, episode talked a bit about um, kind of multilingual con worlds. Um, and I think some of the policies that develop will have something to do with the, uh, you know, that the number of languages that are involved, the sizes of those languages in terms of the populations that are using them um, kind of the geograph, the geography of uh, where the languages are being spoken and, and also some history of use like, um, you know, there might be a difference between the use of Amharic in, in Ethiopia compared to Swahili in Kenya based on kind of Ethiopia's empire using Amharic versus um, Swahili as kind of a trade language. And then just the, the difference of, of um, kind of the multilingualism of, say, like Switzerland versus Nigeria versus the U.S., where um, those all have very different makeup of kind of language populations. So like Switzerland, it's what um, Swiss German, French, and Italian, is that it? And also Romansh? Um, yeah. Um, I, I don't know a whole lot about it, yeah. but um, uh, I, I, yeah, I, just a, just a handful of languages, but yeah. Uh, uh, but I mean, they have um, their regions. Are most of the languages like what, what's, what is the, 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 the language policy in Switzerland versus Nigeria versus I think a lot of us will know in the U S the U S 
technically has no official language, but the working language of government is has been English always, and it, you know it varies from it's you know it varies from state to state how much that's enforced and how much other languages are recognized, right? Right, and and just in terms of the makeup, right? Um, so many people use English even as a home language, but but there are other languages that exist that they're just um, a smaller proportion. Whereas Nigeria, you've got hundreds of languages and multiple big languages like uh, Hausa and um, Yoruba and Igbo. Mm, right. The U.S. doesn't really need an official language policy for English to be dominant because uh, like something like 80% of the population speaks English at home, right? Whereas in some other right. places, then it's not really that that the case that, you know, you have that solid supermajority of people speaking one particular language. Right. And I think a lot of it has to do with, like, social dominance and such, right? Whoever Whoever is sort of on top of the society usually has their language as the most preferred, like, official language. Yeah, and um, and that can that can also have some to do with the kind of workings of the type of government. Um, so, if you're a democratic government and you're really trying to involve the people, and you have significant portions of of minority languages, um, even though they might not have kind of a cultural dominance, it might be important to to figure out ways to develop that language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of, um, that, that kind of goes into, um, I can't remember the title of the book, but this, um, I think it was in the, it's a fairly old book. So like early eighties, uh, Fassold had this, um, distinction between nationism and nationalism as functions of, um, language policy. And, um, so n- nationism would be those things that help you function as a as a state, um, like education and management and those sorts of things. Whereas the nationalism would be, um, kind of creating the identity of a nation. And several years back, I did some research into, um, Ethiopia's education policy and kind of looking at those two aspects. And one of the more recent things that Ethiopia has been trying to do is involve, um, more of the minority languages um, in in kind of expressions of being Ethiopian uh, rather than kind of saying Amharic is the is the way to be Ethiopian in terms of uh, language spoken. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, because a, a lot of the the language policy is about that sort of identity, especially after the rise of nationalist thought and. Um, ethnic nationalist thought there there's this idea of a a state needs to have one particular language um so you're saying in ethiopia they're trying to promote this idea that amharic is speaking amharic is not the only you know way you can identify as ethiopian there are other um languages in ethiopia that are just as ethiopian right uh, but I presume they still, 
they still elevate Amharic a bit just for historical reasons, right? So it's still sort of the lingua franca then? Uh, yeah, and uh, I think in, in terms of the governing, uh, it is. And I think that goes into kind of that management. Of, sometimes it tends to um, be more efficient to stay within one language, but it um, can be challenging. There's been a history of, I mean, clearly Ethiopia is even broken into Eritrea. and um, So there are these groups that um, want to maintain their kind of ethnic and cultural identity uh, separate, but still have some kind of affinity for identifying as Ethiopian. And so, yeah, there's some sort of effort to kind of make Ethiopia understood as multicultural and multilingual. Right. Yeah. So, um, and, and the, that, that's, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I haven't done the research as much as you have, but, um, you know, to me, I see that as, um, something that different governments signal in different ways. I know that there are, you know, there are, Lots of places, you know, Canada, South Africa, India, that have multiple official languages to sort of to signal that, you know, in order to be part of this country, you, you don't have to speak one particular language, but, you know, it's, um, it's, you know, spread out. But, you know, there's still probably this idea that one or two languages will get used most in government. Um, for practicality purposes, I think that's what is that what you mean mainly for with the the with uh, Fazold's um, nationism? Then is that that's more like the practical end of oh, if we do most of our government work in one particular language, then everyone will understand each other. Is that the idea then? Yeah, and it. I mean, it, so it has some complications in that the there are always tensions. So, for example, one of the aspects of nationism is that you you might want to have an educated citizenry right um and so oftentimes um there there's been some research that indicates um fairly strongly that having um especially your early um education in your home language is is you're going to learn right. more right. um than trying to trying to learn a new language as you're learning all these subjects. Right. That's that's something I've heard as well as um learning to read in your native language, learning learning um or not just your native language, but like uh a language you identify with eth ethnically too. Learning to read in it, learning your early school subjects can lead to better better educational outcomes, right? Right. And so that may not be necessarily a nationalistic approach um, saying like it's not about national pride so much as it's about um, kind of functioning of the nation by having um, people who are well-educated um, in, in these other subjects, even if, even if that, that means that you have to kind of pour in extra resources to figure out how to get teachers of each of those languages fluent and, and being able to communicate uh, kind of academic skills yeah. in a, in a home language. Yeah. 
and, or a community language. Yeah, and frankly, um, you know, uh, I think the national pride issues and also the, the, the national pride uh, thing and also, frankly, you know, racism and bigotry end up uh, pushing people to the other end, right, of of preferring only one language to be the the official language and the language of instruction out of some belief that that is the national identity and using another language in school will somehow distance children from their national identity right uh yeah it can yeah it can be used that way and that's all sometimes even um families who um are from a, a minority language in a in a community might feel like they should have their kids learning as a as the language of instruction the dominant language even though the research um on that tells us that maybe they'd be better off learning in their in their minority language so you know there's there's a sense that um that maybe the the kids are missing out somehow by um not being immersed in in this in the dominant language yeah so, so there there can be some complications there yeah um language revitalization efforts run into that attitude a bit the it's just sort of this idea a lot of it's economic i think is that people perceive that knowing the national language will give them give their children better economic outcomes right but right but first of all that's not always a guarantee exactly and secondly you know adding on to the the research that you're talking about you know they'll get better you know outcomes in school if they're taught in their native language and also you know there's it sort of gets informed by this myth that bilingualism is a disadvantage which unfortunately is still a big thing in uh at least in the united states i think in a lot of uh a lot of anglophone countries have this idea that bilingualism is a deficit at least among some people in these 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 places and when really you know the research shows that there are no negative effects to being bilingual and it actually can be beneficial in itself. Um, at least there's, mm-hmm. um, there's some dispute about the, the benefits of bilingualism, but there's, there's an idea. Um, yeah. I, um, I kind of encountered that some uh, with classmates when, when I was studying in Kenya, some of the, um, some of the other students from Kenya and surrounding countries, um, would talk about, they would use the term interference, like somehow learning um, in their, well, this is mostly for their children, learning their children, learning in a different language would somehow interfere with their understanding of English, even though, especially in Nairobi, plenty of Kenyan people there are first language English speakers, but they still speak a Kenyan English, like anyone who's learning English in Kenya as a second or third language. Right. So it's it's just kind of a strange um to me it seemed strange the the idea of like this language knowing one language is going to interfere with your ability to learn another language. Right. Uh and that's 
that's like one of the the sort of myths that that get uh involved and it is sort of a myth um just just to be clear you know we are talking we we're sort of making some value judgments here but you know this is a show about conlanging and uh you know uh in this case something about conworlding uh as it intersects with you know language issues so the the thing to think about it when you're making a fictional world you know we can make value judgments to say you know it's it's not really a a good thing that this idea is out there that bilingualism interferes with people but you you're not making you're not necessarily making a utopia in your con world so you know this is an idea that exists in the world and uh it could be you know if you're writing stories in your con world this could be a source of conflict in your stories that there is this idea that speaking whatever the dominant language is is better or gives you more opportunities and that speaking a minority language is somehow interfering or causing problems for you and the those you know prejudices and those ideas could really uh, is uh, you know those are those are real things that those can fit in uh That's so uh whoa oh okay i'm having some trouble here jake yeah sorry okay. i lost you for a minute i, I was i was, uh, I was just you're in the, yeah i was just basically saying um that you know we're going to talk about you know because of you know research we know some some ideas might not be true or might not be um not not be uh as beneficial or as bad uh you know as the people think they are but you know obviously if you're making a realistic con world people have all kinds of views and people will have all kinds even bad and harmful views so uh don't uh you know don't yeah. don't don't make it you know don't make it feel like we're telling you not to to do certain structures in your con world because you know your con world if you're making it realistic it's not going to be a utopia uh jake yeah um sorry it was starting to cut a little bit yeah i i totally agree like you said um that can make for a lot of great kind of developmental conflict in the story uh, if you're conlanging for story purposes um, and that's that's kind of one um, like as we kind of talk more about education policy education language policy and public service language policy I think that's the things that I wanted to bring up are just kind of the there are so many different aspects of it that you can kind of dig into and I mean you can make things about as complex as you want um, so I think there there are lots of different things that we can kind of parse to to consider when when developing your con world yeah yeah looking at your your notes you have a lot of stuff here under under um education and public service and you're talking about um okay we talked a little bit about um you you were differentiating that um you know this this benefit to learning in your native language that's even more pronounced when you are uh, talking about elementary school. Um, there's also, but um, 
And uh, that that is something that different places do differently. Uh, there's so from my, from what I understand, there's a few different uh, ways that 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 can shake out in education. There are um, there's obviously there's model of just monolingual education where the education is just in one language, right? The and usually the dominant language in that case. And then there's models of bilingual education where um, you can be starting in uh, your own language, and it's either going to be like you're you end up adding the the dominant language as you go along, or it's like you start with your home language and then you are expected to shift to the dominant language for most subjects as you go into it. And I don't I don't think it's like strict categories like that. Uh, I think, you know, most of the time, by the time you get to university level, you're always going to be in the dominant language. But, uh, you know, different, there's different styles of how the, um, how that works out, right? Yeah. And I, I think that was a great example that you talked about, the, the difference between kind of the additive model where you're kind of adding on a new language and set of skills versus like the model that's kind of eventually wants you to substitute your home language for the dominant language. And yeah. And, and a lot of that goes into kind of the, the larger attitudes toward multilingualism or um, particular languages. And um, so, yeah, there, there may be, if there's a strong um, desire for multilingualism, then you might have kind of um, the development of, schooling systems that maintain language of instruction for minority languages all the way up through, you know, potentially even the collegiate level. I think um, to go back to Nigeria, I've, I was told that uh, Nigeria even has colleges where the language language of instruction is uh, in the big three, the Hausa, uh, Yoruba, and Igbo, in addition to Eng- English, of course. Oh, okay. So that, that makes sense. Uh, though, there, there. I, uh, I'm sure that you, this is sort of a relative thing because you're talking about the the big three indigenous languages of of Nigeria, but there's 400 languages in Nigeria. There's not university right. instruction in all of them. Exactly. Yeah, but that kind of a lot of times it's going to take um, kind of public resources in order to develop um, kind of that academic register for link for the smaller languages right um, right and you to be able to- and you talk about creation of a- academic registers this um let's talk a little bit about that because um to be honest a lot of the arguments that people end up giving against minority language I- languages is oh you talk can't talk about physics in uh in that language, you know, especially, you know, this is, this is more common for like indigenous languages because immigrant languages, you know, at least in the U S a lot of the immigrant languages, you know, are highly developed and can talk about these things, but you know, uh, the indigenous languages, like you can't talk about quantum physics and Ho-Chunk. Well, if you got to a point where you developed universities and, uh, and, you know, high level, you know, academia, it, that is 
medium in Cherokee or Navajo, Ho-Chunk or, um, you know, whatever, you know, these languages are that don't, you know, have universities uh, or that those are Native American languages. I listed uh, North American languages, but, you know, mm-hmm. anywhere in the world, you know, there's these languages that are not used in education much. And as a result, don't have that terminology. But uh, I like to say words are cheap. If you if you developed, you know, an education system that got those languages up to the level where you would be teaching in those languages, that that terminology would come pretty quickly. It might need a little official support to to codify it, but you you can you can coin words and you can borrow words. Right. Yeah, and and part of that will depend on how how you want to approach developing new words, right? If you I mean, English borrows plenty from uh, the Romance languages in terms of its academic register. Um, and and so if you want to go that route, you could. Um, of course, you could just have people making it up on the fly. I mean, really, academics are making up language all the time, even in you know well-developed academic languages. There's always new, new ways of using the words. And so, yeah, I, I agree. It's not, it's definitely not something that should stand in the way. Yeah. So, uh, again, we're making a judgment here, but the, like the bottom line for when you're creating a con world is like, is to say the academic register. And, you know, this could go into your conlanging as well. You think about where your conlang is used, what it's used for. And then you can think about, okay, do I need words for, you know, these academic topics, whatever academic topics are relevant to your world. You know, if you're in a medieval world and you're talking about alchemy or you're in a modern world and you're talking about um, astrophysics, you know, does this language need all the precise terminology? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's not that the language doesn't have it. Therefore it's not, you know, it, it's not used in, in the advanced stuff. It's that, the language first is not used in the in those kinds of discussions in the, in academia and stuff therefore the language doesn't end up having those words so you know this this is you know both the conlanging and the conworlding thing is you have to know what your position the position of your language is in the society if you're going to have some discretion of okay what words do i actually need in the language yeah um, so that's, uh, that's, that's one thing The that's, uh, one thing that, you know, we always will have to say is, you know, the choice of a lingua franca, the choice of an official language, the choice of a, 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 a language that's a medium of instruction is all about how your society views, um, not just that language, but the people who speak that language. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And how much power do, do the people who speak this language have? Uh, how do the people who do have power view those people? Uh, and, you know, what, where are they allowed to express their culture and express their own language? Right. Yeah. What is the, the field of the power? Right. The, some people have um, power in certain um, aspects of the society and others in different parts. Uh, yeah, that's true. You you might have one language that 
that is used a lot in religious contexts, but is not much used in government or vice versa, right? So the, there, there's there's a lot of things to um, deal with. Um, I think we talked about so. Um, uh, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit, uh, you know, I'm just looking at your notes and seeing ideas to talk sure. about. Um, uh, we kind of talked about deficit and access sort of without using the terms where talked about, um, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, uh, you know, the deficit view is the idea that speaking a minority language takes away, right. Versus assess, uh, what's assess? That's 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 sorry. more positive. I, hmm? Sorry, I, I think I'm. Um, that should be meant to write. Um, should that be access? Yeah, that's a typo. Or, um, um, sorry, I just blanked on the word. Um, like it, an asset is what I actually meant to write. Asset, just, asset, uh, yeah, asset <laughs> is the idea that oh, this adds to it, and then um, um, uh, but uh, you know. Just to to clarify on that, the deficit view is like, um, and you have down on your notes. Uh, one thing that I was thinking about is the 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 um, the in the U.S. the boarding schools that mm-hmm. were teaching Native American children English, the the Indian boarding schools uh, that um, those were based on this idea of deficit, the idea that Native American culture was holding those people back and that you had to teach them to be more like uh white people right uh the the one of the you know the terrible things that was said there was uh kill the indian save the man uh and you right, know, exactly. that's that's one of the the things that can happen with a very negative view of a minority culture and a very negative um idea is you know people you know build whole structures these these boarding schools were built with the premise that they would help quote unquote help the native americans right and that's that's how right. how it's viewed and how it's constructed as this is this is helping them bring them into the dominant society but in the process you know that's that that's um you know actually causing harm to the culture and uh, can be causing harm to the the students because sometimes those schools were abusive uh, a lot of times. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, maybe just as a structure itself. Yeah. 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 And and I think that's a a good example of not only was that just like in terms of official school language was, English, but even beyond that, it was don't even speak your language ever, you know, or your right. home language. Right. It was strictly so that, enforced yeah, that they would oh, pushing the, poli- the hmm? education policy kind of to its extreme there. George, I think I lost you again. Okay. Uh, so yeah. you were just talking but, about, um, we were just talking about the, the, the boarding schools for Native Americans, and you were talking about um, it's not just that it was. Uh, the uh, the language of instruction was English, right? It was that it was strictly enforced that they should only speak English at school, to the point where you know there were practices like uh, if they spoke their native language, 
that uh, you to, they would literally wash out their mouths with soap and you know awful things like that. So yeah, the 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 the, the things can get kind of dark when people get this idea that a minority language is detrimental and they have to do whatever they can to to convert people into the dominant culture somehow. And uh, I was just thinking about that in terms, like, uh, as I was looking down at the next note about Spanish in the U.S. and how it uh, varies from place to place in time, uh, it reminded me that often, especially in a in a situation where the um, teacher may not have access to um, the language of the students, that that um, creates um, kind of a sense of weakness in the teacher, so that there's kind of a nervousness of I, I don't understand what they're saying. And so I don't have power in this situation. And sometimes um, those sorts of, as, those sorts of um, kind of social aspects of language can play into kind of the, the informal policies that, that get practiced in schools. Right. That's, that's true. Um, definitely. And, there are cases where I, I think I've seen in, you know, news stories and stuff where individual teachers will stop children from speaking Spanish or other uh, minority languages, giving the justification of, oh, well, I can't tell what they're saying, so I can't tell if they're saying something obscene or something like that, um, which is you know, very thin to me, but you know, that's another thing you can talk about, you know, you could, you could have a, a situation where, uh, there's still a dominant language. The attitude of the society is not necessarily that strict, but an individual teacher might, uh, have certain views about it and out of their own desire to maintain their own, you know, status, might want to um, to give the that uh, idea. Actually, um, and I think, like you said, hmm? oh, go ahead. Oh, I was I was just going to say that, um, like you said earlier, about it's it's not just the language, but it's the people that are associated with the language, and that kind of um, the difference between the language being seen as prestige, like. Um, maybe Spanish in the mid 1900s when um, kind of the Spanish Caribbean was a popular kind of American idea um, versus Spanish um, when you're in an area where talk of uh, illegal immigrants is heavily used or something like that. Okay. You were talking about the Spanish maybe Caribbean we're back. Uh, in the 19th century, you said? Oh, uh, no, the mid-1900s. You know, like... uh, Oh, mid-1900s, sorry. When when that kind of was exotic and exciting, um, and so had, you know, speaking Spanish, you know, kind of like the um, I Love Lucy with um, Ricky and and those sort of, like, where that had some kind of cultural um, currency that... Right. So that's not always... It's not always the same and relationship at all times in all places between the languages. Yeah. Yeah. And you're talking about that in terms of, um, different times, right. You know, 
mid 20th century versus today. But I even see like partly in terms of place, but partly in terms of, you know, just there's a, there's a sort of interesting contradiction of attitudes in the U S because like the U S is for a, in a lot of places, just very aggressively monolingual and very aggressively anglophone. And Right. There's this idea, there's the simultaneous idea of, um, particularly for a white American native born, there can be uh, a, a an increase of status from speaking other languages. You know, if you speak more than one language, you know, people will, you know, be, you know, asking you to say things in the other language and they'll say, oh, that's really cool. I could never learn another language. Uh, because, because Americans usually only speak English, a lot of Americans only speak English and they, they think, they think that learning a language, another language is a special thing, but at the same time, and even some of those same people will look at an immigrant and say, oh, uh, well, they really should learn English, uh, the, the, them, them speaking their own language and you know, even if it's like they haven't, they have a foreign accent in English. Well, that's, that's a sign that they are not committed to being American or that is that they're not, they're not, you know, they're not one of us or something. So it's like this, you know, bifurcated thing, even in the same place and among the same people, uh, you, you, you run into this idea of, uh, oh, on the one side, it's a status thing to speak more than one language. On the other side, it's it's lower it lowers you if you're from another country and you speak another language. So, yeah, that that gets pointed out by a lot of people. But uh, you know, that's that's sort of, and it goes to also a little bit of the the weirdness of the American situation and the situation in other ang- anglophone countries i don't know to what degree that all is true in britain but i know that uh you know certain you know people in you know in parts of britain particularly in you know parts of england are you know very you know live in strongly monolingual areas and don't don't and and might have some of those attitudes maybe in australia as well uh it's you know uh, it's not necessarily, you know, it's actually very common around the world for people to just have to speak multiple languages in order to get around. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that brings up kind of this um, when you're building your con world, you you can kind of do whatever in, in that sense, like people in the same household may have different views on other languages. And I think that can create a lot of interesting conflict. Right. Right. Um, you could like, uh, if you're writing a story, well, you can build out, you can think of like, what are the, the, the common strains of thought in the society about language? And some of them might be contradictory. And then you can think about, you know, if you're writing a story in this con world, then, your individual characters will have different ideas about language. Uh, that's that's 
definitely, you know, something you can be looking at. Yeah. I also wanted to touch on, we've, we've kind of, we've talked about language policy kind of as language as a whole thing, but I wanted to just touch a little bit on like all the different ways that, especially in education, how the way languages are taught in terms of whether there's reading, writing, speaking, um, different performances, um, your penmanship, all these different aspects of, that we would lump together in terms of language policies, um, have they may vary greatly. And you can kind of piece, you know, pull those apart and, and do different things with them. Um, like really kind of the, the idea of like performing language and rhetoric doesn't get much play in modern U.S. culture, uh, but it has historically languages have, you know, been very like that's been a very important part of education. Yeah. And things like penmanship, you, you mentioned that people resist excluding cursive, even though, you know, in modern society, it feels like, you know, maybe cursive is not as useful as it used to be. Things like that. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. Parents really get upset that their kids are not being taught cursive when, I mean, I probably only use cursive maybe once every couple of years besides my signature, you know, and for, right. for writing a check that I almost never write a check anymore anyway. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, people, um, you know, you know, and it's not that cursive is a bad thing or, you know, it's not, it can't be beautiful. You know, you can make beautiful cursive calligraphy and stuff, but, there's sort of an, this interesting cultural inertia. You can see the same thing in places where there are language reforms. I think that's further down in your notes, but we can talk about that. Um, switching to a different writing system can get, deal with a lot of inertia. Sometimes it, it works out for p some political reason. There's some political momentum behind it. Sometimes it doesn't. Like... Um, in China, there have been multiple attempts to move China to a more uh, phonetic writing system. But there's 3,000 years of, of inertia for using Chinese characters. So the, with that long history and this, this big, you know, this, 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 ancient writing system being such a an ingrained part of the identity of the people and the identity of the language and all these ideas of oh the 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 han characters unite chinese whether that's you know true or false it's not it's not it's not um i don't think it's as unifying as uh people say it is but you know it's nevertheless these are this is these are very very culturally important, and so they stick. Um, whereas other logographic systems have uh, gone away, you know. There's uh, if you talk about modern logographic systems, there's the ones that still exist are all based on uh, Chinese characters uh, that I mean that are mm -hmm. still regularly used in uh, in uh, you know, in a major way, there might end up being, you know, sometime in the future where some part of that society breaks off 
and they decide to to change the writing system for a new identity or something. But I think that, you know, those characters will stay. So that, you know, changing, you know, the writing system, uh, the, the, uh, um, the, the ideas of calligraphy and stuff. Oh, and people, you know, going to Chinese characters The I think, uh, part of the, 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 um, maybe the equivalent to uh us like talking about writing in cursive is you know uh people in china lament the way that uh so many young people don't handwrite characters enough the they they type in pinyin on their phone and then they get the character and and too many young people forget some rare characters so <laughs> that's their 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 version of whinging about cursive yeah and I, I I think that's interesting and kind of uh, brings up maybe a point about the nature of like formal policy versus kind of the will of the people. And sometimes those things don't line up. It reminded me of um, Theodore Roosevelt tried to create a, a spelling reform that really, you know, kind of simplified thing, um, but it just didn't take off, you know, had those things. And then you have um, the um, the French Academy of Language that tries to is trying to maintain a a French way of speaking you know that doesn't pull in other lang- other languages as much and so these kind of there's always a tension well maybe not always but generally a tension between um, kind of the public versus uh, formal policy yeah and that's a that's an interesting thing of so the academy Francaise, uh they 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 try to keep a lid on language change in French. They try to keep a lid on like borrowings and stuff, but they're not their their success can be a little spotty, right? The like there's there 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 are, you know, recent English loan words in French that they can't stop. Uh but uh you know, you have um uh you know Sometimes, sometimes fiction t- takes that kind of idea to an extreme in terms of regulation of language. Uh, the, the key idea is new speak in 1984, right? Which, you know, is making a political point from the idea that the government's going to take total control of language. Well, that's an interesting sort of ph- philosophical idea, but it's not realistic that that could really happen to an, the extent that it's portrayed in 1984. Um, right. It would have to be. Yeah. You'd have to have extreme control over the populace in order to do that, which I mean, that, uh, to be honest, that's the point of the, the novel is that the government does have this exactly. extreme yeah. control over the policy, the, the, the public and the party has such control that they can enforce these things. But I mean, uh, the way that public policy interacts with language is going to be more subtle than that in the real world. Right. But these, I mean, even on local levels, these policies can have effects. And I think that's when, when we were talking about the calligraphy and penmanship and, uh, it reminded me like, so I switched from one Missouri school to another Missouri school um, when I was in the middle of first grade. And 
the first school that I was a part of, uh, when we learned to write our letters, we put the little tails on the end, kind of like a prompting toward cursive. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then at the new school I went to, they didn't do the tails. And I nearly flunked um, penmanship in first grade. And, you know, it's it stuck with me enough to be able to tell that story now. And it was just like that idea of like, someone thought it was so important that I'd not put tails on my letters to like, give me a D, you know. And <laughs> so it's just like this kind of... <laughs> yeah. And that was that was different local jurisdictions, right? So, exactly. Which, which, you know, that just shows how complicated these can be, especially if you have, you know, a lot of local control over your um, uh, schools, which is the case in the U.S. But yeah, the, the, that that is interesting that, you know, you... You had one style of of um, writing that you were taught in grade school, and your next teacher said that's wrong. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> the the that's uh, that's interesting that uh, that could happen, and you know you you could you could see that happening in in um I mean I could see that you know being even you know taken even further of like this is a point of contention between two regions of a society that the they write in different ways i mean that that even happens in the real world of you know so in india and pakistan mm -hmm. um there's several differences between hindi and urdu uh you know there's differences in uh higher level vocabulary in terms of uh hindi getting it from sanskrit Urdu getting it more from Persian, but there's also uh, the one of the major differences is that they're written in different scripts. Now, this is these are th these are mutually intelligible. Uh, linguists often categorize them as the same language, but the national identity of these two countries uh, is predicating on them being two different languages, and one of the ways that they make them more distinct is you have Hindi written in Devanagari script and you have um, Urdu written in Arabic script. And that is a signal that, no, these are two different cultures, two different languages. Um, right. So, yeah, the, that's, uh, I guess, language policy takes in more than just language. It takes in the writing system and all, and all that uh, cultural baggage and stuff. Did you want to talk some about uh, language protection and standardization? Yeah, I was thinking let's let's talk about language protection a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's two sides of this. There's there's the idea the there are, are people the there's the, the 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 side of the Academy Française which believes that it's protecting the the dominant language, which is French, right? But mm -hmm. there's also the idea of um, protecting minority languages, which in the real world has come, has been, um, you know, uh, a big thing uh, more recently. I mean, there's been this idea of documenting these languages for a long time, uh, but like it's relatively recent, this idea that we should try to maintain or even resurrect these languages that are, um, uh, you know, dying or 
or uh you know minority languages that are that are that are you know declining right jake yeah mm-hmm. um so i mean your thoughts about that yeah um i mean i haven't haven't done much research into language protection but i i think it is um you know, one of those interesting, and, and maybe that even goes back to some of the, uh, like, you know, what you almost hear anytime, like when you're fairly new into the, into conlanging the, the notion of like dying languages and on all this. And so, you know, it would be kind of an interesting nod to that conversation. If in your con world, there are, you know, people trying to save dying languages and, and right. I mean that could that's a story idea in in and of itself. Um you create a conlang that happens to be a minority language that is you know declining and people are trying to keep it going. Uh one thing that um we could do an entire episode on endangered languages. I don't know if we actually I think we've talked about them before. But um the 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 thing about that is um there's there's just a very wide range of like potential outcomes and potential solutions you can have to some extent it depends on how many speakers there are and some 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 factors that go into the the you know structure of the society how are those people viewed by the society uh, how is the language viewed among the internal people and the outside society what domains is the language used in all those things figure into it but to another extent you know you can get things that seem sort of uns- unexpected like you can have um you know, a particular small group that doesn't have a lot of support, but still ends up with um, a very healthy um, society, uh, a very healthy language situation where it's, you know, pretty solid because maybe those people have a particular pride in their language and they spend more resources in maintaining their language. They are, you know, very likely... Uh, the, the, like the main factor is passing it on to new generations, right? So the, 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 um, they're very likely to, uh, uh, you know, they might be very likely to pass it on to the new generation, even if it's not that beneficial. On the other hand, and here I can pull out an example, you have, um, a situation where, like with, Irish. Irish is one of the official languages of Ireland and is not doing terribly. You know, there's there's uh, there's a fairly large number of speakers. But even with a lot of government official support uh, trying to put it in schools, it's on all the road signs in 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 the Republic of Ireland, all all of that stuff. It's still kind of declining. So, and there's this weird tension in that the, a lot of the preservation efforts are, you know, focused with middle class in the cities, whereas a lot of the older speakers are, you know, rural people in what's called the Gaeltacht. And 
there's sort of this disconnect where the Gaeltach has continued to contract, contract, but there are all these like middle class city dwelling second language speakers of Irish that that are you know really gung ho about promoting Irish. So there's there's sort of a, an interesting situation. You can have all kinds of with language policy and um, and you know particularly with, you know, minority languages and stuff, you can have all kinds of interesting sort of contradictions in what's going on. Yeah. And I think some of that might also have to do with what we talked about at the beginning of the episode in terms of like nationalism and can you be Irish without speaking uh, an Irish language or, you know, can you, you know, be whatever this, you know, can you be Ho-Chuck without speaking it? Um, and so perhaps that plays some into this idea of language maintenance, if it if it's part of the identity in a broader sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, you know, in the real world, we usually just sort of don't, we don't, uh, you know, when when people, when linguists try to help people with... Um, with language revitalization and stuff, uh, we don't try to, you know, make that kind of judgment for people. We don't want to promote necessarily the idea that you can't be, uh, you can't be who you are because you don't speak that language. But we, we, you know, at least the the linguists that I know that work on revitalization projects, they think of it as a community directed thing. And say that okay, it's I I'm I'm helping them because they want to preserve their language, and if they do, don't want to preserve their language, then I I won't uh, I won't try to make them do it. But you know, that's uh, another that's that's at least that's sort of the modern conception of that. Um, I now that I think of it, I think we have done a whole episode on language endangerment. So I don't want to necessarily dwell too long on this, uh, especially as we're getting a little long on the, the episode, but um, uh, it's definitely a part of language policy and how, how um, minority language speakers are viewed, how they're treated by the overall society, by government, by schools and all that this all factors into how how well that language survives. Yeah, and whether yeah, and it was just the way you were talking about how um, the the linguists that you know that preserve um, have this kind of very community based idea. I could I could imagine that there would be a situation where preserving a language um, for some nations might be more of a like you know sticking the butterflies on the on the cardboard in, in the sense of like, here are all these languages that we've somehow indexed or something, but not, not trying to actually maintain them as a, a as a living. And, and the thing is, that's how it used to be in linguistics. It used to be, um, you know, the, the old idea of language documentation, which still survives for a few people was this idea of, uh, we, it's unfortunate that this language is dying out, but this is a natural process. What we need to do is we need to document this, eat all these languages as well as we can. Uh, 
so that future generations of linguists can have this data to to study and draw conclusions from. Uh, that idea is not so popular now with our endangered language activists because they say, well, um, it benefits the the actual cultures that we're studying, that it benefits them to preserve their language. So we should actually try to help them continue speaking the language. And by the way, it it's also a little bit better for us to have living native speakers of these languages to to continue to have data generated uh, if they are willing to let us into their societies, which they don't have to. Um, so, yeah, the, the there is there there can be those different views of of uh, you know how you view a language that's disappearing. Is it you know some unfortunate natural event that you just need to uh, you just want to preserve the species before before it's gone, or um, you know freeze it at amber, or do you want to prevent it from dying off and and actually you know do do something to to promote people using it so yeah that i can see that and i could see you know all kinds of interesting things coming from that all, all sorts of interesting ideas um so uh we've talked a lot about um we've talked a bit about standardization there there is a an idea of Standardization could be centralized, like with the Academy Francaise. The, the, they, they, they dictate the standard for continental French. At least that's what they, they try to do. The uh, same with like the Real Academia Española. You know, these language academies try to dictate the standard from centrally with varying success. There's also English, where mm-hmm. there's no central authority for English. There's descriptive projects that try to describe the English that's out there, but like for American English, uh, the, I've I've seen people study this. the The standard, quote unquote, standard American English is mostly defined by like what it is not. There are there are features that people identify as non-standard things like double negatives or uh, ain't or um, things. Some of them are widespread in lots of dialects. Some some of them are features of particular stigmatized dialects. Uh, but these are things that are not standard. And then you know people actually vary in the U.S. as to who they actually think speaks most standard. And a lot of people, um, a lot of, a lot of times people think that, that they themselves speak the most standard, except a lot, but not, not always. There are people, people from the South don't always think that they themselves speak the most standard. They think some other place speaks more standard, but they prefer Southern accent anyway. Uh, so yeah. Sure. <laughs> so it can be centralized or decentralized how the standardization happens. Uh, Jake, you have other stuff to talk about with standardization. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess in some ways, 
we we touched on it a little bit. Um, I think one of the interesting things that happens, especially if you're trying to um, provide signage or writing, you know, text in it, that um, there tends to be um, some type of dialect collapse. Even like when we're talking about, um, you know, Southern English in, in the U.S., uh, there tends to be a wide variety of Southern um, accents, but we often like if they're portrayed in, you know, a movie or something, there's, there's tends to be like a kind of collapsed version of those or, and um, more specifically, I was thinking of, uh, so often in Bible translation, if you're in a, an area where there might be a pretty broad um, kind of dialectical spectrum that it's not feasible to make a translation in each of those kind of language communities or dialectal communities, but um, you may try to make some sort of in-betweenish thing that um, collapse can can function as a, a way of collapsing those dialects. Right. We've talked about the sort of a similar thing before uh, in uh, an episode. We talked about dialects and we called Kunstsprachen, and this uh, it's an idea of um, right in certain contexts. In certain contexts, you even have people creating like new a new dialect that combines different dialects, and that goes way back all the way probably all the way back to you know the earliest people who were communicating over a broad area but you know the the ancient greeks did this kind of thing you had um you had uh ancient greek writers took elements from different different greek dialects and sort of created a certain sort of style that is sort of this in between dialect and that's what a lot of the writing uh, was in. I'm. Uh, I wish William was on for this because he knows a lot more about that situation, but uh, than I do. But um, and then there's other other ways that that kind of thing can happen where it's not so much um, combining dialects, although that's probably in in it all the time or collapsing dialects, but uh, using some older form of the language for modern for for communication purposes like what happened for many many centuries in Chinese where people used something something close to classical Chinese long after that dialect uh you know uh it's something pretty close to like uh what what people were writing in middle Chinese up for a long time, up through like the, the beginning, the, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, people still writing in this language that nobody spoke anymore. People were speaking the modern Chinese languages, the Mandarin, Cantonese, Shanghainese, all those languages. And those are very, very different from what the language that was, being used and written and you know it was it's you know they might have even been writing in that classical language but pronouncing the characters as if they were pronouncing their own modern chinese language so um the the 
that kind of the, there's there's all kinds of things that can happen with that with um collapse i i do agree with you that um when the, the when movies and stuff portray someone with, with a southern accent sometimes they the that gets collapsed i think it's more that um unless you get someone that's from the area and you know Ideally, you would want actors that are from the area and natively speak the dialect you're targeting. Unless you get that, um, when they train actors to speak certain dialects, they don't necessarily just like teach them entirely to speak in this dialect. They pick out very salient features that people will be able to recognize as that dialect. So, right, right. And sometimes it's even a little bit weird because, like, even, like, modern shows. Uh, I remember watching um, – have you uh, watched the the American version of House of Cards on Netflix? I have not. Uh, the, the guy uh, – so it's following a congressman, uh, this very, like, amoral congressman guy from Georgia – and he's he speaks you know people complain about his, his, the the accent it's kevin spacey playing it the accent that he uses i don't know all the the things that might be wrong with it but one thing is that he uses an rless dialect uh so deleting final rs um but now i don't know how much Arlessness might still be around in Georgia. I think there, there might be you know, a, a good number of people, but um, Southerners, the the Southern dialects, and especially white Southern dialects, have been shifting away from that, from Arlessness, and and speaking more awful dialects. So it's you know having that show set in a modern time with a guy speaking an Arless dialect. It might feel a little bit anachronistic, but at the same time, people watching the show can instantly recognize that this is a Southern man from Georgia. He speaks he speaks in a Southern accent. Right. Yeah. It, and that's, I guess that brings up an interesting point about how, you know, we might be able to pick on that, pick up on certain um, things, but maybe someone from a different area doesn't have that nuance. Um, yeah, actually... And that's that's that might be something if you're writing a story and you have your conlangs involved, or even if you ha are writing a story that talks about the language that people are speaking, but you don't necessarily have a fully developed conlang, you could have that sort of idea. You have the idea of um this is getting away way away from the topic, but um you can have that sort of idea just sort of mention some certain features the people identify with certain dialects and and um be maybe you know introduce a character speaking by no telling what features of their dialect that other characters notice so that's a that's an interesting thing this that gets more into like language attitudes and stuff than language policy but you know that's um you know yeah a little bit of a but sometimes those things work into each other even especially in terms of education, like um, what uh, in terms of education? 
Oh, I was just going to say like, um, when it comes to what, what literature gets chosen to be in the schools, um, those sorts of, you know, conversations, like we might have some sort of classical literature that we think is important for. And so that becomes kind of an educational policy to say, these books must be read by the students. And the, and then of course, other books then get ignored. And that, and that, uh, figures into the, the language policy question, right? That that's connected to language. Um, I always, I, I always, I feel weird about required literature classes because the, that's just sort of a vehicle vehicle for that of like promoting the, the canon literature for the, the children. And, uh, All right. you know, you know, this, this is who you should read in order to be a good adult. And it's like, I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's thousands of of good authors out there, millions of good authors out there. Why why we particular these particular works are canonized and and considered the the most important in society? Uh, so well, but you know that's yeah. a thing and, you, you might want to think about. And then of course some of our some. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say some of the. Um, near canonical canonical books that we have now are rejections of previous canon, right? Yeah. Yeah. They can be, but that's, that's a thing you can think about if you're building a con world uh, and you are talking about language, you want to also talk about what does the society read and what does the society expect people to have read, expect someone who's educated to have read Mm -hmm. and what, what does that say about the society? What does it say about um, Anglophone societies that we all are expected to ha- to know at least some of the f- more famous plays of Shakespeare? Like we we are all expected to regard Shakespeare as this you know genius of writing, and we're all expected to know um, some of his his works not saying that he's not a genius or that he's not a really good writer but you know why shakespeare specifically and what does it say about us that in our schools we specifically you know are always teaching our children shakespeare uh you know why why is that you know why is why why is this particular elizabethan author elevated so much it's just you know this, you know, why it says something about your society and who, who it values, what it values. Um, what's the, what's, uh, what, what people, um, you know, what, 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 uh, and what, who, who is powerful too. Um, let's, we're going a little long. I want to get, um, we've talked a little bit about your yeah. policy changes ideas. Uh, and we've talked about, uh, I mean, we've talked about orthography change a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, let's talk a little bit just quickly about that. You talk about, okay, new regimes can change the language policy. Right. Um, and this, I mean, especially if you're in a situation where um, kind of the ideologies of the regimes vary. Um, and that could be even in a democratic society where, um for example, a um, democratic president is 
succeeded by um, a Republican president. You know, um, the kind of educational policies that come out of that may may vary greatly, and so you have this oftentimes an oscillation between like preservation of minority languages versus um, promotion of dominant language, or you know, any of those various things that we've talked about can be shifted back and forth um, in terms of formal policy. Now, whether that trickles down into the, the policy in terms of practice, you know, that, that can greatly vary. Right. And it, it depends on a lot of things. I think if there's a really strong break, then there can be really significant changes. Uh, I recall reading that, um, the promotion of standard French really sort of begins after the end of the French monarchy and with, you know, the, the, uh, the French revolution and part of their beliefs was they were promoting education and in order, and part of their promoting education was also promoting a national language, which became French, which was actually standard French sort of grows out of the language that was also already used by the aristocracy. Um, now that's an interesting thing. Mm. Um, uh, but you know they they promoted that um and uh and it was part of this promoting it as as the the national identity uh same thing really happened in china with uh the overthrow of the qing empire you know before that it was n- much more focused on a much more of you know everyone spoke the different um quote unquote dialects of chinese um but you know it quickly came to promoting mandarin as a standard language uh and um and mandarin again the mandarin was the language that was used by the imperial officials uh so it's interesting the the language of power stayed the man- language of power but uh people wanted to spread it around more um and then uh and then uh in the prc um, there's an interesting thing in language policy there where like the way that Chinese is viewed. So Chinese, all these different Chinese languages in China are viewed as sort of one language and they consider Mandarin to Mandarin Chinese to be the standard. That's, that's like the government's take and sort of the dominant idea in the society. There's, you know, uh, some Canton, you know, Cantonese speakers might, a lot of them will disagree uh, with that position. It's, I'm just saying, you know, this is a, a common idea in the society. But that attitude also bleeds into minority language policy, where um, China has, like, I think 55 recognized uh, minority ethnic groups, and they say, okay, each of them has their own language. But they codify one particular standard language for each of them, even though many of these minority groups speak several different related languages. Or they even are, you know, because whenever the government um, tries to recognize your ethnicity, it's always messy. Sometimes it's like unrelated groups get lumped together as one of the recognized minority groups. 
and they're just expected to have this one language, even though really they speak, uh, might even speak unrelated ones. So, so that was a change in policy, but that still maintained, uh, sort of how the society overall views language and also built that into like how it treated the, 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 you know, the non-dominant cultural groups languages. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, I feel like if there's a major break, there can be a major shift in language policy. Um, you know, in elections in the United States, they've become more and more polarized, but there's still the idea of, um, you know, you have a president that goes serves for four to eight years. Uh, the there's the American government is the U.S. government is sort of built to like be uh, constantly fighting itself so that things don't get done that well. So uh, so uh, change can be very slow moving here. Hmm? Yeah, the one of the things that um, since the education department is kind of is at least federally is strictly under the um the president then it kind of gives uh, a little bit of extra leeway and the the thing i see it most in is in terms of testing we didn't talk much about that but um in terms of like intrix exams ex- exit exams those sorts of things um we don't have a civil service exam here but uh but where really you can see like if one particular um, governing group is really invested in English language only, then, then they're going to require that, that your, right. You know, graduation exam is given in English. Whereas others might say, no, there's no requirement for that. So you can give it in whatever language is best for that student. And so, right. Yeah, and that that can maybe ebb and flow um a little bit. Um the uh um uh, we there is there, Yeah, but you're right. We're not likely to go to like a you know, an extreme different right. situation. Although, you know, with recent events, you never know what's going to happen actually. Uh <laughs> but um the uh one thing about um uh, where one thing about the testing is, you know, that that's something to deal with. We do have civil service exams for particular jobs in civil service, I think, but not like, uh, it's not that general. I think you can, and you can get some government jobs without it. Right. Um, but, uh, right. <laughs> thinking about exams, part of this like cultural identity thing and such, um, I believe in order to become a naturalized citizen of the United States, even though we technically don't have an official language, you still have to demonstrate uh, a certain level of ability in English. So that's, um, Hmm. you know, that's uh, another thing. If you're going to be an American, if we're going to accept you as an American uh, coming from another country, you have to, demonstrate here that you can integrate in our culture by speaking our language. Right. Uh, which is. I, I just don't know enough about it. In, in ter- I was just thinking like 
like what, um, I don't know enough about that process to know what version of English is, uh, like if you have to be very specific in, in being able to present like kind of um, the general American to or be honest, I don't, I don't fully know. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's an interesting, you can still get, um, you know, that it's, I think it's mainly in citizenship that that happens. Um, there's, you know, a lot of immigration statuses, you don't really need to demonstrate English ability, um, unless, you know, it's a secondary requirement. If you're getting a student visa, well, the university is going to have you take the TOEFL, which is, you know, this standard standardized test, mm -hmm. which, you know, asks you, uh, you know, it's sort of a standard American English that it enforces. And they'll either accept you because you got a high enough score or they'll accept you provisionally and put you in an intensive uh, English learning program so that you can, uh, you know, come to the United States as a student and get up to speed in English so that you can follow the classes. Right. So that is, so, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's another level of enforcing, enforcing English in the United States. And that can happen in a lot of places, you know, and, but at the same time, there's not a general requirement for United States citizens to speak English. If you're a natural born citizen, you don't necessarily, you don't have to be, you don't have to speak English in order to be uh, an American citizen if you were born here because you already have the birthright citizenship. So there's all, all those kinds of uh, factors involved. It's not, it's not like a strict, it's, it's not always perfectly strict, right? Right, absolutely. We're already. This is already a super long episode, but it's it was it was fun talking to you. Uh, um, <laughs> apologize to listeners for any digressions. To her, so many digressions, but uh, I think think we had a very good uh, talk, and this is a very interesting topic. Um, I just want to say, you know, we presented a lot of ideas here. I just want to say, you know, this is a thing that you want to think about if you have a conlang that's set in a con world and uh, your conlang con world has, you know, different languages in it, which reasonably there should be at least mentions of other languages, even if you don't have, you know, multiple full conlangs and, you know, you have governments and societies and stuff that are trying to enforce certain ideas about language. Uh, so just, it's something that you need to think about. What are the, main views of the society? What are the views that are prominent regarding language? What are the views that the government has regarding language? And what are the views about speakers of different languages? And then how does that all get translated into policy decisions by the government? How do they enforce their views on the public? How do how does the their view of language implement get implemented and promoted within a society yeah so uh any last thoughts um i was just gonna reiterate that um as soon as a policy is introduced resistance is going to be close behind so there's always kind of a tension there right so there's always people who disagree 
Uh, you know, there's always going to be, if you start a big bilingual education program, then there are going to be nationalists on one side saying, oh, uh, no, this is, this is, this is damaging to our national identity. This is damaging to, mm-hmm. uh, to us. We should only speak one language to be one country and we should, we should encourage these other people to learn the dominant language and all that stuff, you know, and then, or on the other side, you start promoting a, a strong national language policy that excludes other languages. There, there will be people on the other side being like, well, no, but our language is part of our culture and our identity and we don't want to let it go. And we want we want to mm-hmm. we want to have full access to the society without having to abandon our own our own culture. So there's always going to be you know fights about that. There's, if you have a realistic society, not everybody's going to be on the same page. Uh, there might be a, an opinion that's in the majority. And that opinion is probably going to be driving policy a lot, uh, and, uh, especially in a, a democratic society. But even in a in in a more authoritarian system, a lot of times the the sort of opinions of the majority have some reflection in terms of national identity and stuff. But um, anyway, uh, <laughs> the. That's 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 just the thing. You have um, what are the views that are prominent in your society about language, and about about speakers of particular languages, not just the languages themselves, but the speakers. That's that's the key. And how does that bubble up into policy decisions? So, yeah, and you and you can think of policy decisions not just about the language as a whole, but about the writing the literature the speaking the performing the any any aspect of language might have its own bits of policy mhm yeah and you know down to what works of literature are um are canonized and said okay all students need to read these and also how do you write the letter b mhm <laughs> um but um so anyway that's all for this week, I guess we got a nice long episode for people, and uh, <laughs> we um, had a nice, good conversation with you, Jake. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Uh, and uh, thank you, listeners, for listening to us ramble on, and I'm going to say happy conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and on Tumblr now. All of those you just find conlangery. Our web space is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our theme music is by Null Device. And our new site was designed by Bianca Richards. 